now. Ugh, here we go. This is Telehell. Okay, we're not wasting time with a cold open this week because it's time once again for another Patreon request. This one comes to us from a user named Funny Music Man who made the simple request that we cover two shows, which I would normally protest about because we're at the tail end of the season and we really didn't have any room for two more subjects to cover, but because the customer is always right, we'll compromise. We will cover both of the shows you requested in this one episode. But as different as these two subjects are, there is a common bond between the two. All the way back in episode 24, when we spoke about the Little Shop of Horrors cartoon show that aired briefly on Fox, we sort of telegraphed the fact that in the early 1990s, Saturday morning television was about to take part in a major paradigm shift. Sure, you had the broadcast network still wheeling out some of their heavyweights, but on the horizon, cable TV was starting to chip away at the audiences by putting on some of their own child-friendly programming, along with some certain governmental changes that would come a little later on, but we'll tell you about that later on. By the turn of the decade, there was already Nickelodeon, the Disney Channel, and eventually in 1992, an entire network dedicated to cartoons that Ted Turner would put together. So naturally, the broadcast networks decided to increase their firepower. Though in some cases, they really didn't need to do that much. By 1991, ABC, NBC, and CBS have been neck and neck for decades as the leader in Saturday mornings. And let's not forget about the upstart Fox Kids Network being hot on their tails. But with all these changes and competitors nipping at everybody's heels, something had to give. ABC was dominant in cartoons thanks to their acquisitions of Disney shows, the long-running Bugs Bunny and Tweety show, and the revival of 70s edutainment interstitial Schoolhouse Rock. CBS was still fighting thanks to the success of Muppet Babies, Garfield and Friends, and also acquiring the broadcast TV rights to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles by that point. And while Fox Kids was the new kid at the time, their lineup of shows, not counting Little Shop, were being seen as a suitable alternative to the traditional. And then there was NBC. They, too, experienced their fair share of Saturday morning successes, especially in the 1980s when both the Smurfs and Alvin and the Chipmunks carried most of the weight. But by the time 1991 came along, both of those shows ran their respective courses, and NBC was looking for a way to fill some programming holes. Considering how much success NBC had with existing cartoon brands in the past, the Peacock decided to take a chance with another cartoon workhorse. <laughs> For me personally, Yogi Bear was one of those cartoons that was always present in my presence. It was always on TV, but I barely ever watched it, unless there was absolutely nothing else to watch. But that's just me. To many others, Yogi is the lovable, troublemaking, Art Carney impersonating Ursine, who, along with his sidekick Boo Boo, would go around Jellystone Park to steal picnic baskets while avoiding the passive-aggressive wrath of Ranger Smith. 
Considering just how many times the Brain Trust at Hanna-Barbera could write the same old stories over and over and over and over again over the course of several decades, eventually, the powers that be decided to put Yogi into more fantastical situations. There were a couple of TV movies where he tries to save Christmas, another where he tries to save Easter, still another one where he tries to make a great escape of some kind. Not one, but three instances where Yogi finds himself... And even one where he tries to fly Howard Hughes' airplane, the Spruce Goose. I call it the Spruce Moose, and it will carry 200 passengers from New York's Idlewild Airport to the Belgian Congo in 17 minutes. No, I said goose, not moose. Point is, through all the rebranding and reinvention it's gone through since its debut in 1961, Yogi Bear, like many Hanna-Barbarians, never really went away. No matter how much some people wanted it to go away. I'm so smart it hurts! Um, you're standing on the soldering iron. Or it's that! One of those reinventions took place in 1991, and fresh off the heels of another Hanna-Barbera reinvention. There's a mystery in town! So call the coolness pop around mentioned before how the ABC Network and Scooby-Doo were practically inseparable in the 1970s and 80s. But let's also not forget the last time the network found great success with The Great Dane, 1988's A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, which not only kept that franchise alive, but also did so by making their protagonists slightly younger than they used to be. Instead of them being stoner teens in a psychedelic van, they're now grade schoolers who still solve mysteries, but now use just a little bit more slapstick. Well, Shaggy, I'm glad to see you're taking the stolen bike stuff like a man. My bike! My cherry 1959 Starfire Special! Gone! Gone forever! <laughs> the show ran for three seasons of original content, plus a handful more years' worth of reruns. As the tail end of the run is happening, there was another TV show that was airing at that time that capitalized on existing IP that also dealt with younger versions of existing characters. We're tiny, we're toony, we're all a little loony, and in this cartoony, we're invading your TV. Tiny Toon Adventures was also a hit out of the box that ran for a few years with fresh content, followed by a long life of reruns. Coincidentally, the production of both of these shows were spearheaded by TV cartoon wunderkind Tom Ruger. He has nothing to do with this next part of the story, but perhaps if he was involved, maybe this show might have experienced a better run. Putting two and two together, NBC and Hanna-Barbera came to the realization that if young viewers were tuning in to watch younger versions of already popular cartoon characters, maybe lightning can strike a third time. So it was decided to not only put the inhabitants of Jellystone Park through the Fountain of Youth next, but also do so in a way that would appeal the most to young viewers, while at the same time trying not to trample too much on the legacy of its predecessors. For instance, instead of just yoga, Boo Boo and Ranger Smith being around, why not load up the cast with younger versions of the rest of the Hanna-Barbarians? Snagglepuss, Huckleberry Hound, Cindy Bear, Dickie Dastardly, and Muttley from Wacky Races, plus a handful of others who would make cameos from time to time. Instead of a Jellystone Park, it would now be a mid-sized city with a local mall as its cornerstone. Instead of stealing picnic baskets, the picnic basket would be the name of the hangout where Yogi and friends, well hang out. 
And instead of the lush green surroundings of Jellystone Park, why not inundate one's senses with everyday glow color in the spectrum? Because, Satan forbid, people weren't wearing enough day glow in 1991. The result? Trying to make Yogi Bear... Cool! September 14th, 1991. Carolyn Sapp was crowned Miss America. Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams was somehow at the top of the charts. And at 8.30 a.m., 7.30 Central, as the youth of America was gearing up for a morning full of fun and sugar content, we soon learned quickly that this wasn't going to be your average yogi. Yo, 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 yogi, yo, 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 yogi, yogi's here with all of the old crew. The theme song is fine, though I'm just glad it didn't adopt a new Jack swing sound that would instantly become dated once Smell Like Teen Spirit decimated all existing music in its path. Little shop of horrors, I'm looking in your direction. On the eyeball side of things, though, in spite of just how much the visual side is making my eyes burn, the imagery is clearly trying to capture the attention of the children of the 90s. Given how much sugar-frosted cereal they're going to eat at that hour, they're going to need something of a similar speed to watch just to keep up. One sees the opening of Jellystone's new mall, run by the Hanna-Barbera characters who always sound like they swallowed a thesaurus, Doggy Daddy and his son, Augie Doggy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Diamond Doggy Daddy, and welcome to the grandiose opening of my new Jellystone Mall. Right you are, entrepreneurial pop of mine. There's fun. There's excitement. There's even balloons for the kids. <laughs> That's my upwardly mobile boy! And while the prospect of a grand opening is enough to get anybody excited, Yogi seems to be a little downtrodden over the prospects. Uh, we don't even have enough cash to make a down payment on a hot dog. And don't forget to stop by our fabulous food court, where there's plenty of free samples for the whole family. Food for free? That's for me, me, me. So while Yogi does what cheap people have been doing at Costco's for decades, an expositional newsman tells us what the main story of this episode is. The invisible bandit has struck again. All citizens of Jellystone Township are warned to lock their doors and nail down their valuables. This is to pay More on that later, as we now get to meet the rest of the Laugh Olympians at a younger age. And if Doggy Daddy sounds like he ate a thesaurus, Snagglepuss definitely sounds like he was personally fed by Merriam-Webster. Take a gander, a giggle and gaggle even. Didn't I tell you, Snake? It's the latest spot to see and be seen. And I can see all the latest movies at the Jellystone Super Movieplex already. What a Jim Dandy place to rewind and unlax. And what a lousy place to put a tree. Of course, not everything can be all about malls and painful shades of neon. The Jellystoners have a frequent foil to deal with, and his name is Dickie Dastardly. Drat! No more parking spaces! 
Well, I'll fix that. Hey, what's the idea? The premise. The notion, even. That's my spot, see? <laughs> Your spot? Wow, how very thoughtless of us. But just where are we supposed to park? Try. I'll be. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Oh, no, my eyes! And we should probably emphasize that Dastardly is not 100% the villain of the show. He's just a foil. Someone who gets in our hero's way while the actual villains are whatever it is that's causing problems that week. We mention this because right after Dickie does his deeds, his bicycle is soon floating out of the mall courtesy of the Invisible Bandit. Again, more on him in a moment. Meanwhile, Yogi catches up with the rest of the gang and attempts to save them from needing an EpiPen. I'd leave this problem to me. I'll solve it faster than one, two, three. Yogi's Bebop service to the rescue. Bebop, Yogi? Yeah. Yogi stops the bees with a spare picnic table. But the bees are nothing if not devious and resourceful creatures. So, ignoring real-life logic, the power of the swarm manages to levitate the picnic table and continues chasing our heroes. You heard me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Looks like the table's done turn. All the while, we now get to meet the second foil of our Jellystone Juniors, Ranger Smith, now in a mall security role. And he's just as big a wiener here as he was in any other version of the show. And that includes Tom Cavanaugh in the live-action movie. If that invisible bandit shows his face around Jellystone Mall, you can be sure I'll spot him, sir. With this eye-in-the-sky 5,000 security cart, I can monitor every corner of the mall. Oh, wow. Check this out. What is it, my son? An unsatisfied customer? Pushing it opens up your mouth. Oh my gosh, the Invisible Bandit! Too bad high-definition cameras weren't in style back then, because he could have clearly seen that the table was being carried by bees. And the more I have to keep telling myself to suspend disbelief in cartoons, the quicker we can get through this. Anyway, after splitting up between escalators, the bee-powered table tracks down Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound who offers this word of wisdom. Most fights can be avoided if you act polite-like. How's it going, picnic table? Now that's what I call bad table manners. That's right. The table just beat down on a dog. Let's see you put that in an ASPCA commercial, Sarah McLaughlin. A little deception, perhaps. A disguise. Some camouflage, even. Watch out! If you're looking for that dashing teenage cat Snagglepuss, he went that away. Looks every time. And now the table just beat up a cat. Got any more animated animal abuse for us? You kids, that table is mall property. Shout out to the bees, please. I declare, Yogi, it does not take a high school diploma to figure out how to get rid of bees. 
For those of you playing the home game, Cindy Bear stops the bees by giving them some flowers to pollinate. This stops the table's momentum by causing it to careen into Dickie Dastardly's direction, and somehow, even though the three bears are innocent bystanders in the whole bee table incident, Officer Smith still has to be a wiener. Oh, a wise guy, huh? I'm taking your name. Only if you promise to give it back. That does it! You're banned from this mall for life! Does this mean no freebies from the food cart? Poor Yogi. Looks like he's got a major problem now. Okay, so let's recap all of that. Number one, Dickie Dastardly steals everybody's bike so he can have his own parking space. Number two, the bikes are then thrown into a beehive where bees attack the Jellystone kids. Number three, Yogi tries to stop the bees by having them collide with a table. Number four, the bees then use the table to chase the Jellystone kids all over the mall. Number five, Cindy Bear stops the bees and the table, and yet it's Yogi that gets arrested? Shouldn't it be Dickie that gets in trouble since he started all of this? I mean, I know this is a cartoon, and I should not be reading too much into any of this, but fair is fair. Yogi was trying to save everybody, but he gets busted while the privileged kid walks away scot-free. Hashtag Bear Lives Matter. But I digress. Wasn't there a plot about an invisible bandit? Your walking stick just took a walk. What? Stop, thief! It's the invisible bandit! Indeed there is. And it kicks off Act 2 as Doggy Daddy's cane gets kidnapped, and he offers a reward for whoever can retrieve it. Yogi wants to do it, but not without reluctant help from his friends, as well as the powers of persuasion. I'd say detective work is simply out of your league. Well, I guess that means we give up the reward then. Like a free membership at the Svelte Pelt Fitness Center? All the bats, baseballs, and bolos a kid could carry from the sports fort. A lifetime pass to the Jellystone Super Movieplex. But hey, what do you care? Oh, Yogi really is smarter than the average bear. Big deal. How's that any different from when a politician makes a campaign promise? So now, the Jellystone Gang essentially becomes the Scooby Gang, only without monsters and with a lot more fur, as they set out to find what's causing the consumer goods to simply up and float away. And, of course, Dickie Dastardly living up to his name while trying to stop them. Come on, Muttley. There's a fat reward with my name on it waiting for me. (laughs) Oh, uh, quick sidebar. Is there anything that you'd like to contribute to the proceedings, Muttley? All you've been doing so far is stand around and make that obnoxious giggle of yours. <laughs> Any contribution to society would be encouraged. Thank you. The gang split up once again to track down Doggy Daddy's cane. First, Snagglepuss tails it down to a French restaurant where... Monsieur, you cannot come in here like that. Apparently, the French cousin of Dr. Otto von Scratch and Sniff works. Uh, okay, now that's not really a joke, is it? You see, because it makes no sense. This is an outrage! And this is an exit stage. Right! Meanwhile, Huckleberry Hound tries to grab the cane using fighting techniques on loan from Hong Kong Fooey. Looks like I'm going to have to resort to the speedy and highly secretive art of Huck Foo. Hey-yah! Hee-haw! Gotcha! Ow! Oh! Ooh! Eee! 
So now Yogi and the gang regroup to stop the thievery once and for all. That crazy Kane's heading for the third floor. So, Boo Boo, you cut through the garage, and Huck, you jet around the perimeter. Snag will go undercover as the Queen of England. Sheesh, what a stretch. And no comment. And besides, that's canonical now. And I hope it gives Huckleberry Hound the courage to follow suit. I was so gay, but I couldn't tell anyone. I'll cut to the chase. Yogi goes to the mall's round-the-clock geyser. Again, yeah, you heard me. Yogi is able to catch the cane and return it to Doggy Daddy. But not without discovering what was able to make it float in the first place. There's something bogus about this bandit. What's that, Yogi? Ah, mysterious like clue, boo-boo. All right, kid, caught your red-handed with that. My cane! My precious cane! Okay, so we know what is making things float, but we still don't know the how and the who of it all. So, while Yogi's friends decide on what freebies they want from the mall, our average bear decides to take matters into his own hands by carjacking Officer Smith's patrol car to further investigate things. Looks like a high-tech rheostat circuit something or other to me. And now, it's mine! Ah, give that back! You want it? And cue our frequent foil's third comeuppance of the episode in three... Two. What's going on? Hey, Boo Boo, they're getting away with my clue, clue, clue. Act three sees Yogi Junior hot on the trail of where Dickie Dastardly is being floated away to. All the while, seriously, does Mutley do anything else aside from pointless giggling? Maybe you think this joyride's fun, Mutley, but I think it's for the and finally see the source of the invisible bandit. Bombastic Bobby's Boggin' Bond! <laughs> what did I pick up this time? A toaster? A diamond ring? A, 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 a boy and his dog? I believe this is yours! What'll you give me for it? It appears as though the invisible bandit is a guy who I can best describe as a caricature of actor Clint Howard in his 40s wearing a plaid jacket. This guy is the owner of a local bargain store who tries to one-up Jellystone Mall through a plan that, I'll be honest, borders between smart and stupid. My electromagnetic dots have been placed on thousands of items at the Jellystone Mall. With my master degenerator, I can easily deliver the goods to myself. <laughs> Once I've stolen everything, nobody will go to the mall and shoppers will have to buy from me at incredibly inflated prices. <laughs> Yes, you heard it correctly. He uses magnets. Fucking magnets. How do they work? To steal items from the mall so that he can then sell them at marked up prices. I know that sounds like something to be annoyed over, but then again, have you been to eBay and Etsy lately? Yogi catches wind of the plan and tries to tell his friends to get into action, but they seem to have other things on their mind. I vote for the bow packs and cross-training football bat. Heavens to Rambo, no! Lifetime passes to the movies already! No, football bat! Movie passes! Football bat! Movie passes! Come out, boys! Okay, seriously, did NBC and Hanna-Barbera really think they could score points with the I'm not old enough to drive demographic by spoon-feeding them capitalism? 
For crying out loud, the show aired at 8.30 in the morning, and the target audience was only getting allowances of, at the very least, $5 a week in 1991. Hell, I was seven years old when this aired. I didn't care about shopping. I cared about video games, soft pretzels, and learning how to add two-digit numbers. But that was it. I have a feeling they may have overestimated the audience a little bit here. But back to the point. The gang eventually come to their senses and help Yogi stop the cut-rate criminal from any further magnetic shoplifting. Long time no see, Mr. Invisible. Quiet, you teenage troublemaker, because you're going out of business. Oh, they're teenagers. Okay, that kind of, sort of makes things a little better, but... Then again, I can't imagine teenagers watching cartoons at 8.30 in the morning, so yeah, I'm still annoyed by this. Jeez, whoever negotiated Muttley's contract must be a genius. Get paid to giggle and do nothing else. Cha-ching! Okay, let's bag this bad guy! Yeah, your picture's gonna be in post offices across the country! You've got a very magnetic personality, sir! Yeah, bitch! Magnets! Oh! So, with Yogi and the gang saving them all from a small business, a new lucrative opportunity comes up for all of them. Why not solve crimes full-time? After all, teenagers do need some work experience, don't they? You and your squad are in charge of handling all lost and found cases, and you can start with these. Gee, Yogi, this looks like a lot of work. I'd say this detective-type problem-solving stuff is gonna be fun. Just think, the fame, the fortune, the fringe benefits. Let's say to celebrate, we go snag a pizza pie in person, at the food court even. I go out, then we can order in. Yogi! And for a lack of a better term, that was Yo Yogi. One of a number of shows that put the turd in Saturday. Day. Not that the show didn't at least try to stand out among the competition. An interesting postscript to the show. Thanks to a tie-in with Kellogg's Rice Krispies, one thing that made the show stand out a lot was the fact that this was one of the first animated TV shows to be presented with sequences in polarized 3D. Not to be confused with the classic anaglyph format with the red and blue lenses, these lenses were more the black and white type, but created a more realistic impression of things jumping out at you. Like the precursor to real D glasses that you find at movie theaters today, and is also something you can hear about more in our premium episode on Foxorama in our Patreon. Unfortunately, that gimmick wasn't enough to get kids to tune in, with NBC airing only 13 shows from September to December of 1991. But surprisingly, this was actually the better of the two shows that we'll be covering today. While the other networks managed to find and maintain success by obtaining durable intellectual properties, Yo Yogi was just a red herring for what NBC's actual plans for Saturday mornings were in 1991. The network decided to take a slightly different route than their competitors. Instead of just getting the rights to an existing IP and making it look hip for a hip audience, why not get the rights to a famous person and use their likeness in a cartoon?
The tale of how Air Jordan, plus two other big names in the world of sports, got roped into doing a cartoon. As the tale of NBC's Saturday Morning Decline continues. After the break. Oh no, it's baseball. Bo knows football. Bo knows on Telehell's premium content of the damned. Hey, I heard you were talking about Fox shows from 1987. Hope you got time to take down one more. Hey, I heard you were talking about Fox shows from 1987. Hope you've got time to take down one more. Hey, I heard you were talking about Fox shows from 1987. Hope you got time to take down one more. Hey, I heard you were talking about Fox shows from 1987. Hope you have time to take down one more. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast for just a few bucks a month. You can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. Continuing with the story of the beginning of the end of NBC's Saturday morning lineup, if you thought Space Jam was Michael Jordan's first foray in the world of cartoons, allow me to tell you the story of how he, hockey icon Wayne Gretzky, and renowned knower of football and baseball, Bo Jackson, got roped into doing an animated series. The roping in was done courtesy of two figures, CEO of Deke Animation, Andy Hayward, and longtime American TV writer, and in his spare time, an actual English baronet, Douglas Booth. I know, much more interesting subject to talk about, right? Well, too bad. Somehow, Hayward and Booth managed to convince the three biggest athletes in the world to lend over their likenesses for an animated cartoon. And on that note, let's smear an asterisk or two on this show before diving into it. This program, to be called Pro Stars, would, in fact, have Jordan, Jackson, and Gretzky in the show, but with quotations around the word in. Yes, they would actually appear in this show, but no, they would not be voicing their animated counterparts. 
Professional voice actors Dorian Harewood, Townsend Coleman, and David Fenoy would have that honor. The real Jordan, Jackson, and Gretzky would appear in some of the hastily edited micro-bits in between segments of the show, thus giving the impression that they're part of the show when, in reality, they were probably paid hundreds of thousands of dollars just to say a few sentences. What a racket. As for the reason why these sports icons teamed up in the cartoon itself, well, it's pretty damn hard to believe. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. September 14th, 1991. Copy and paste all the stuff I said at the top of the Yo Yogi segment. And at 9.30 a.m., 8.30 Central, NBC's hopes to get more kids to watch their Saturday morning lineup were sitting on the shoulders of the biggest athletes in the world. And also a knockoff of a Queen song, apparently. Michael's time is slam time! Pro stars! Show stars! Queen's hot! Slam shot! Now, we feel the need to remind you that since this is a cartoon, our ability to suspend any and all beliefs being presented in them is a given. But that's a little hard to do when we're seeing footage of the athletes performing in real life versus their animated counterparts. One minute you see Air Jordan slam dunking, the next minute you see him wearing rocket shoes to help rescue someone from a fire. Then you see Great One Gretzky doing what he does on the ice, followed by his pen and ink persona using the latest in puck morphing technology to take down a generic bad guy. Lather, rinse, and repeat for Bo Jackson. Scenes of him doing football and baseball one minute, animated Bo knowing how to lift a tree trunk like it's a baseball bat the next. And all of these scenes put together are being done with one mission in mind. Pro Stars. It's all about helping kids. Is it, though? Is it? Don't answer that question just yet. Because we now have some of that awkward hyper-editing we warned you about. More fast-cut footage of the stars and their real-life jobs, followed by the verbal equivalent of clip art. Bo Knows Cartoons. Hey kids, how you doing? I'm Bo Jackson. Hi, I'm Wayne Gretzky. And we're... And we're the Pro Stars. Pro Bro, looks like we've got trouble. Hi, my name is Jason. My name is Jacqueline. Wayne, did you ever quit... I never, I never quit playing hockey, but there was a time where I wanted to quit. Uh, I was uh, 13 years old, and, and there was a lot of uh, politics that went on and uh, interference from, at that time, people I didn't think should have been interfering with, uh, with kids' hockey. I'm sure my parents would have understood if I quit playing something. Well, the only problem is, Bo, you never quit anything. What can I say? I like sports. It's game time! The show hasn't actually started yet, and already there are questions. Number one, where's Michael? Number two, I can only assume everybody involved is getting paid a buttload of money to do this, so why not show a little more enthusiasm, Wayne Gretzky? Yeah. At least Bo knows excitement. I'm very excited. And number three, no seriously, where's Michael? He is in the show, right? Or was he too busy winning games for the Bulls and or getting annoyed doing promos for local TV at that time? Watch the Bulls on WGN. You damn commercials. (laughs) 
Well, those are just the wraparound segments. They shouldn't have too much bearing on the episode itself. You should also probably mention that since this is an animated TV show, the one thing we thankfully don't have to worry about is continuity. As nine times out of ten, Saturday morning shows are self-contained and hardly ever serialized. So, even though this is the first episode of the show, this is not an origin story. We just have to instantly accept the fact that these are our favorite sports stars of the 90s who just happen to fight crime. But now to answer another question. Who exactly is it that they're fighting crime for? Join us now as we begin Act 1 at the Pro Stars version of the Hall of Justice called Mom's Gym. Hi, Pro Stars. My name is Jimmy Hanks, and I heard that you guys help kids with problems, and I got one. I was in the Museum of American Sports where my dad works, and I was telling him something that I don't think he liked hearing. Because after I finished, he just walked away. A minute later, I heard him yell something about Cleats Robinson. And I haven't seen him since. And I'm scared. Well, that's a little vague, isn't it? And whose mom does the gym belong to? Nobody in particular. Just a random elderly woman with a stereotypical Jewish mother's voice. Yet again, you heard me. Look, boyish, as mom, your coach, your mentor, your basic nudge, I want you should be extra careful with the wonderful gadgets my lovely Denise has designed for this mission. Okay, I know I said you have to suspend disbelief for cartoons. But this has to be asked. Why would you give the three biggest sports stars in the world a Jewish mother? And unless she worked directly with the Israeli army, why is a Jewish mother running what looks like a secret spy agency out of her gym? The show never explains what the connection is. It's just pro athletes work for a Yenta who runs a gym by day and a spy agency by night, and we're just supposed to accept this as fact. Ha 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 ha. So, okay, sure, why not? And what would a spy agency be complete without a James Bond Q-like assistant showing off the latest in gadgets? Introducing Denise, mom's assistant, not daughter, not niece, no relation whatsoever, just an assistant. A character who, and I quote from Wikipedia, wants to help the pro stars, but barely makes an impact. All right, Wayne. Now this might look like an ordinary wristband, but when you press here, it instantly becomes a full-sized hockey stick. Hey, cool. Yeah, but there's more. Check out this boomerang puck. Wonderful! This way you'll never lose it and we'll save money. Oh, let me show Bo his stuff. Mom, don't you think you should let Denise handle the demonstrations? Don't worry! I'm like a ninja schminja boy! Nothing can go wrong. Careful! Just keep telling yourself. It's just a cartoon. It's okay to suspend disbelief. It's okay if nothing makes sense. It's the only way to get through it. Be fine. And where does one start this journey? Okie dokie, my boy. Let's go do it. Kick some booty and bring back Postal One in one piece. It's under control. I was born to fly. Because of course the pro athletes turned part-time secret agents have their own shoe-shaped jet to take them all over the world. Don't act like that couldn't exist. Nike founder Phil Knight could have one if he wanted to. Laws of flight physics be damned. Anyway, the pro stars go out in search of the boy's missing father and the connection between him and a supposedly dead baseball player. Hey, there he is, bro bros. 
Jackson, it's really you. Hey, and Wayne Gretzky, too. To repeat, these are just their likenesses. They're not actually voiced by them. But go on. I think the reason my dad left is because I told him I quit Little League Baseball. I kept striking out. Listen, Jimmy. No father would leave his son for striking out. <sighs> well, Slugger Hanks did. Slugger Hanks is your dad? Yeah, and he's supposed to meet the commissioner of baseball when he comes to dedicate our new statue. Commissioner? But now he's not here, and it's all my fault. Your dad may not be here, but it's not because of you. Something's up, and the pro stars are on the case. Let's do it! So now it's time to meet what passes for the episode's bad guy one of a handful of baddies in the show's rogues gallery. This one is named, I'm not making this up, Clockwork de l'Orange. Because, okay, sure. The average viewer of a Saturday morning cartoon will get that reference, right? Brats! The brat called in those pumped up pro stars. But they don't scare me. Why, you ask? Because I'm crazy, insane, and a snappy dresser. Besides, once my electronic wave generators are activated and ready, I'll have control of every exhibit in the museum. And I'll be ready for the next phase of my plan. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. As the pro stars continue to explore the sports museum, Del Orange springs a trap. Yes, it's me! I mean, I hand over the brat! No! 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 I thought you might say that. Then Cleats will have to take him. <laughs> With a little help, of course. <laughs> As the team regroups at the museum's snack bar, they try to figure out what the connection is between our bad guy du jour, the kid's missing father, the commissioner of baseball, and robots trying to kill them. Even David Lynch wouldn't be this convoluted with a plot like this. Mom, check it out. It looks like our old pal Clockwork de la Lange is back on the prowl. We don't know why, but it probably has something to do with the fact that the commissioner of baseball is due in front of the museum at noon. You are the boy is Denisola. Take Postar 2 and warn the practitioner. <laughs> you mean the commissioner. Whatever, just go! I swear there's a plot in here somewhere, but not without more padded-out fight scenes. What's up there? That's where they keep the world's biggest basketball. Wayne, grab Jimmy. Come on, watch out. A ball like this could play havoc with my shooting percentage. That ball's about to play havoc with us. Pro stars, you're doomed with a capital B. I mean D. To be continued. Right now. Boy, if we don't want to end our careers, it's time for some outside shooting. Nice shot, guys. Pro stars! Please tell me there's a rhyme or reason behind all of this. Why would anyone go through all this trouble? And more importantly, why would the audience be invested in this? Even as I'm typing out the sentence, the boy is kidnapped by the pile of sports equipment, I have to wonder why I'm supposed to be invested in this. Oh, right. Somebody requested this. Never mind. 
So the chase is on to rescue the boy and stop the evil sports gear from taking over the world, and I need to take some aspirin because this is incredibly confusing. I'll be right back. Jimmy, Wayne, are you guys in here? Clockwork, I know you can hear me. If you do anything to my little homeboy, you'll answer to me. That would be unbearable, wouldn't it? Hey, Wayne, look, I hate to inform you, but it's not only you. And whatever you do, don't turn around. Huh? A bear? How did he get there? There is no time for wondering, because the father is already fighting the bear. Then the bear leaves. I forgot. There is no aspirin in hell, so now I have to plow through with headaches. Anyway... The pro stars manage to fend off the animatronic animals for the next few minutes, while we finally find out the how and the why of Clockwork de la Ronge's... Secret plan! My dad will never help you! He would if his son was in grave danger, and I do mean grave. When I was a kid, no one ever let me play center field. I swore that someday I'd get even, and now the time has come! <laughs> That's it? That's the reason why you would want to take revenge out on baseball? Because nobody would let you play? Pete Rose has been banned from the game for almost 35 years for gambling. He may still complain about it, but he wouldn't go holding Commissioner Rob Manfred hostage over it. Faye Vincent, maybe, but that's not the point. Just move on and find some other way to occupy your time. Hell, you're a mad scientist, and you seem to have mastered animatronic technology. Work for Disney. They just laid off a couple thousand people. I'm pretty sure they'll hire you on the cheap. But again, I digress. As we let a cameo from Marv Albert do some more exposition dumpage. Hello, sports fans. This is Marv Albert reporting live from the Museum of American Sports. The commissioner will be here any minute to unveil this statue of baseball's greatest slugger, the Fave. Thank you, Marv, and yes, your check's in the mail. Moving on, the kid and his dad reunite briefly. De La Ronge warns the dad that if he doesn't do what he says, the kid will be erased with the stuff that they use to dissolve tunes in Roger Rabbit, and all seems to be going to plan. To be continued. Again. Right now, as the pro stars contemplate what life was like for Robert Shaw at the end of Jaws. You know, Bo, I'm sure I read somewhere that being in a shark's belly is not healthy. Now I can see what I'm doing. Then the bear comes back for more fighting. This is so unusual, I might have to lose my mind. My diagnosis is that this bear needs a mycolectomy. No problem, Wayne. Congratulations, Dr. Bo. The operation was a success. Shall we go? So, after more padding than you'd find in a typical sports uniform, even more of the same as the pro stars finally make short work of the bad guy. Vertical wall climbers, activate. Right behind you, Bo. Look out, babe. Flight 23 is on the way. Oh, goody, goody. Now I can have some fun. Hold tight, gentlemen, and you'll be out of there in no time. Here it 
comes. Absolutely the fattest gopher ball in history. And the babe takes a mighty swing. And it's going, going, gone! I assure you that what you just heard will be part of our YouTube trailer this week. But then again... Seeing what I just saw will probably not do anybody any favors anyway. So the bad guy is foiled, the kid and his dad are saved, and everybody learns a valuable lesson, I think? I don't know how to thank you for all you've done for me and my son. Not to mention organized sports. And guess what? What? I've decided I can play Little League Baseball after all. Jimmy, you know I'll love you even if you never play ball again. I know that now, Dad. But I also know that even if I strike out, I'll be just like my buddy, Bo. <laughs> Score one for the kid. I'll tell you what, little slugger. If you ever do learn how to hit a curveball, you can teach me too. Sure thing, pal. Remember, the pro stars are all about helping kids. If by helping kids you mean accidentally put them in mortal danger, then yes, you've certainly helped a great deal today. Now let's wrap this up with another wraparound piece that gives the illusion that the real athletes actually give a damn about this show. Hi, I'm Brian. Wayne, how do you get ready for a game? I think to get ready for a hockey game that starts the day before. The way I get ready for football is I sleep. I tell the guys don't wake me up until we get ready to go on the field. Bono sleeping. Wayne, you're crazy. We have a light skate in the morning. I make sure I have a, a breakfast and a big dinner at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I sleep for about two hours in the afternoon. So, as you can see, I sleep a lot. <laughs> I think all professional athletes realize that it's our living. And uh, if you're not properly rested, you can't, you can't perform at your best. And we travel so much. And the game was, games are so physical that it's important to, to rest properly. And Bo sleeps a lot. Dazzling insight, I'm sure. Oh, and uh, just so I don't forget... Where's Michael? Yes, I know. He was the biggest star in the sports world, and he was likely busy winning championships as the show was in production. But if the other two athletes look like they're barely involved in the show, why not complete the trifecta and give the audience what they want? I'd like to believe that that was the reason why this show only lasted 13 episodes, again from September to December of 1991. But the reasons go deeper than that, as we now put both of these Saturday morning stillborns into our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, treachery. Let's talk about both shows separately first. Given the choice between the two, I would say that in spite of the fact that Yo-Yogi's title character has a nuclear-powered stomach willing to devour anything in a picnic basket in gluttonous ways, and the fact that Yogi's friends have become far more materialistic here than they ever were at Jellystone Park kind of goes against what made them lovable characters in the first place, making them a mark for heresy. But still, Yo-Yogi is actually the lesser of two evils here. Not that pro stars didn't at least try to be interesting. If the show was strictly about athletes in their real-life forms without the high-tech gadgets, the show would be boring to watch. So I can understand the creative liberty of making them crime fighters. However, having the athletes be voiced by anybody but themselves, in spite of how talented the voice actors were, is just going to leave them with a permanent scar of fraud. And because this was the more action-packed of the two shows, you gotta mark it down for some minor cartoon violence. 
But then you get to the common bonds between both shows. Not unlike most cartoons in general, both of these shows try to ride the crest of existing waves of what was popular back in the day. Pro stars with their marquee athletes, Yo Yogi with their attempting to zero in on the pulse of modern day youth with bright colors while maintaining decades of tradition from existing intellectual properties. And both of them missing the mark completely. The easy thing to say about both cartoons is that regardless of suspension of disbelief or not, they were still both cheap cash-ins on what was hip and cool at the time. Or in Yogi's case, trying to turn something old-fashioned into something hip and cool. To say nothing of what I can only assume was a small fortune that Deke Entertainment paid Jordan, Jackson, and Gretzky to use their names and likenesses all in the hope that people would tune in, as well as all the consumer pandering that Yo Yogi tried to inflict on its young audience, marking both of these shows for greed. But perhaps more importantly than anything that we judge here, both of these shows turned out to be emblematic of a major change on the horizon for NBC's future Saturday mornings. Yo Yogi and Pro Stars earns five out of nine circles of telehealth. But like I said, those two shows were only part of a much bigger story to tell. As we've been mentioning throughout the story, 1991 would be a watershed year not just for NBC's Saturday morning lineup, but also for the day part altogether. Pretty much every single new animated offering the network had that year got the axe by December of 1991. The reasons being a combination of low ratings, cost-cutting, network politicking, and yes, even government interference. We'll talk a little more about this when I feel like it, but let's not forget that the year 1990 was actually kind of pivotal, for that was the year that they passed the Children's Television Act of 1990, which would soon require U.S. broadcast television networks and stations alike to air programming specifically designed to serve the educational and informational needs of children. But again, that's a bigger story for another day. By the time 1992 came around, NBC realized that it could save a lot more money if they produced live-action shows on Saturday mornings instead of wasting money on animated programs. One particular show that the network had already been airing at that point not only proved that theory, but was just educational enough so that they could fall within this children's educational programming guideline. When I wake up in the morning in the you knew this was coming. A discussion of the downfall of cartoons on NBC would be incomplete without mentioning Saved by the Bell, the teen sitcom that, thanks to it airing much later in the morning, benefited from higher ratings and revenues over the animated stuff. Putting two and two together, NBC's next step was obvious. Replace all the cartoons with more teen sitcoms with barely educational content, more nonfiction shows like NBA Inside Stuff and Name Your Adventure, and perhaps the biggest buzzkill for any kid, replace the early morning hours of cartoons with a new Saturday edition of the Today Show. By 1992, NBC Saturday mornings had effectively become TNBC, the T standing for the teen demographic they suddenly shifted towards. The much younger kids would then drift off to other networks for animated fare, and all was right with the world, at least for the moment. To be continued, for real this time. We thank you for your request, Funny Music Man. And as much as we appreciate all the requests that come our way on our Patreon, no matter who makes them, just a friendly word of caution that we 
kind of prefer to fulfill those requests while the season is taking shape, not near the tail end of it. Just something to consider for next year. And now that we got that out of our way... Next time on Telehell... I'm... an imposter. That man is the real Seymour Skinner. Nope. Uh-uh. No way. No. I'm not covering this one without a little reinforcement. Uh, Hollywood, 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 Hollywood. Nah, that wouldn't be listed here. Gonna have to do this the old-fashioned way. Hello, operator? Get me Bill Oakley. One ringy-dingy. Two ringy-dingies. I I have a feeling this is going to be a very long-distance call, so I know it's going to take a while to connect. Until then, happy Mother's Day, Mom. And happy birthday, Barbara. And of course... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. 